insurgency is basically a political problem yep so if you want to sort out an insurgency you have to sort out the politics of it okay. after all insurgents are your people and they have gone against the government the against because they feel they haven't got that what we did in 71 where okay. a para- parachute battalion was dropped near just on the outskirt of dhaka at tangail and they captured a bridge there and okay. it brought pressure onto the pakistani headquarters thinking that you know you're getting surrounded from all sides and these troops have come in here we love doing the defense podcast on the ironic show it's not just the stories or the experiences that they have it's what you get to learn from this there's so much to learn about leadership qualities about being a good human being today we have another army veteran on the ironic show brigadier deepak sinha he has been part of the indian paratrooper forces and has served extensively in northeast and jnk this is more about the insurgents the militant activities in jnk having served on the ground his experiences and his stories are to the point and gives you a clear picture of what was going on in jnk during 95 96 when we were posted out there enjoy this podcast with brigadier deepak sinha thank you brigadier deepak sinha sir thank you so much for your time and for being on the ironic show uh, we have been waiting for you on the ironic show uh, we wanted to we want to know a lot of stories from you uh, your army experience your paratrooping experience thank you so much sir for your time thank you ronik it's it's a pleasure and uh, actually uh, i'm glad uh, you got hold of me and uh, i've been able <laughs> to share some things with you anyway. so i hope my t-shirt color goes with the theme of the evening absolutely absolutely it <laughs> doesn't though but doesn't matter <laughs> at least one of us does okay uh, sir i would i would straight away jump on to uh, so you have served as a brigadier in the indian army so you have a lot of experience of special forces and paratrooping in northeast and jammu and kashmir regions which are two of the most hostile terrains in i mean if i have to speak that way uh, sir i would like to know about the jammu and kashmir terrain so before we get deep into the paratrooping experience i would like to know what exactly is going on there and what do you think is the future i mean when it comes to jnk and pok overall and what has changed after article 370 right uh, okay let me let me put it this way we we all know the history to the whole thing right in 1989 right. the the or 87 or something the elections happened the elections were fixed they were rigged the people who actually won the jamaati islam who actually won the elections were not allowed to come into power so you had a lot of people who were very upset Hmm. and then uh, they they were preyed on by the pakistanis and they they started started a militancy right right that happened in 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 89 by 89 by 90 the uh, it had reached such a stage where you know the 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 pundits were thrown out of the valley and stuff like that and then the uh, government brought in the army and uh, the situation started to stabilize now that stabilization took a fair amount of time i mean people will um, say that it's not yet stabilized uh, but that's how insurgencies go insurgencies mm-hmm. don't normally finish in 4 5 years they normally an average insurgency doesn't go less than 30 40 years 
right? It's a long, it's a long drawn out thing, and it has a lot of uh, threads which you need to. I mean, you have uh, say Nagaland, where we've been at it now for nearly sixty, seventy years. Yeah. Okay. So now, now Kashmir, uh, th- th- there are two parts to it. The initial part from say till around ninety six, ninety seven. When you had the first time you could actually hold elections, was because between ninety and ninety six, the army was uh, in full flow. It, mm. the, uh, uh, it, the the militants were meeting. I mean, they were being uh, 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 the clashes taking place nearly every day. You had uh, uh, around two thousand odd militants dying every year on an annual basis. And there were supposed to be about seven to eight thousand militants who were operating in the valley at that time, and I'm just talking about the valley who had also Rajouri and stuff like that. And the units available at that time were very limited because you had a you you quickly brought in some units and they were doing the thing and and they had a thing going there. Uh, by '97, the uh, violence had been brought down. Area domination had become preeminent. Predominant, and uh, the the army was in control. So you were able to in '96, you were able to organize. I think '96 it was that you organized the uh, general elections. Very few Kashmiris actually voted, okay. but in '97 again you organized the state elections, where a few more numbers increasingly voted. A lot of the people who couldn't vote were also scared of what the militants would do to them, because there was a fair amount of threat. Right, but between '97 onwards, the situation improved. It improved to such an extent that in by '99, the the Pakistanis realized that they were losing control, and which is why they did the Kargil operations. So Kargil created two problems, and if you recall Kargil, they said that militants yeah. in top. So Kargil created two problems first. It created a vacuum in the valley because you pulled out a lot of troops from there and moved them up to deal with the, uh, which we were not very sure what cartel was about. Mm. And we initially also thought it may have been militants, but later realized that it was the actually Pakistani army which had come. So, in Kargil, that is one problem that was created. And so, that, that gap which happened, the, uh, the vacuum which it created, gave militants a chance to regroup and restart. However, the because Kargil ended the way it did with us uh, actually being victorious and forcing the Pakistanis out, and the fact that uh, the U.S. was then able to convince the Pakistanis to stay out of India, uh, out of Kashmir, for some time at least, so those things carried on. Now, what you have to understand with a milit- with, with with any insurgency is that insurgency is basically a political problem. Yep. So, if you want to sort out an insurgency, you have to sort out the politics of it. After all, insurgents are your people, and they have gone against the government, the against because they feel they haven't got their due, or the democratic systems are not working in their favor. That's how it works, basically. Right. That's how the initial Kashmiri insurgency happened. So, so even even uh, should I say that in Punjab it was also to a certain extent that kind of thing, though it was slightly different, obviously. But in Kashmir, when we're talking about it, so so what happened after that is that 
if 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 you look at a political solution what used to happen is that the governments which were there along the line from right from 97 onwards is the moment the army is to control the situation the the the, the politicians would get down to not doing anything about actually sorting out the problem i i have in uh, some of my writings called it the business of insurgency mm. because if you keep a low key insurgency going then there is no accountability the the people nobody is coming to check your audit your documents nobody is coming you are not going into the field and so it suits a lot of people there are a lot of stakeholders it suits more funds are given to that state to control things that gives you an opportunity for more corruption so so there's a whole lot of things involved in this so it suits stakeholders to keep a low key insurgency going anywhere so that's why i call it a business of insurgency actually it's a business it's a proper business so so what happens is so so the first actual uh, political movement that ever happened was article 370 abolition abolition or whatever you want to call it whatever it is but practical terms it's abolition of the article yeah. so that has that gave the government an opportunity to bring about a political solution now sadly the part of that 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 where we, where things have gone a bit uh, uh, wrong is that the government was the, the especially mr modi and all prime minister modi took the very strong decision of doing away with article 370 but they didn't follow through the follow through meant was even a higher risk but the follow through meant that you take away the uh, you know the armies that uh, act which you have which protects the army there so so the army you could have pulled the army out withdrawn the army put it on the borders because mm. by 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 the time we did this the actual insurgency had died down from locals it had died down only people from a, across the border were coming in nobody could attack them or nobody would give away their positions but but they didn't have that support of the people because the people were very clear that they're not going to win and they wanted right. peace they wanted their peace at the end of it and so this was an ideal opportunity where a bit more needed to have been done surprisingly or unfortunately the government was not able to push through that maybe the government maybe the army because there's a fair amount of the army which says that look we get out from here and then some things go wrong then it's a restart back to zero and we have to start again which is which is not wrong but but it is also uh, Uh, there are times when you have to take the leap i mean it's it's a basic uh, premise that you have to work on so you have to be more uh, optimistic about how things would work out But this is where the things stand so we've been going around in circles we are again going around in circles shall i say that now the insurgency is under control that is mm. very quiet you know when i'm talking about a time when you had 2000 militants dying in a, an, annually and now you have uh, uh, not more than 100 150 maybe 50 60 being neutralized in a year so you can imagine the how how scale of how low it's become so uh, what was the year when you uh, served in jnk i was there from uh, i think uh, around 95 95 to 97 so i think it was peak of this in- insurgency that you are speaking about and also the kashmir exodus also happened around the, i think just maybe a couple of years before that around 90 early 1990s yeah 
but but so it was you... not peak it was it, it by that time we had started to come, come to grips with the uh, militants we had a lot okay. of information about them and uh, we were able to in 95 when we came and we had a fairly yes there was a lot of uh, still action happening i mean uh, my unit must have neutralized about 150 200 odd militants but but we had i mean this certainly things had uh, started uh, going down the scale had going, started going down we had the problem of trying to convince people to go out and vote give them the feeling of security that okay when you go for the voting we'll ensure that no militants ever target you after that mm. it is very difficult to convince somebody who's been and you know for 5 7 years of uh, uh, intense uh, military uh, actions where a lot of violence is happening a lot of uh, people are getting affected civilians are getting uh, you know i mean they become Uh, casualties without uh, without being there i mean they just sort of one of those things that happen and they, you know the the militants don't have a system to follow we have the army at least has a right. proper system in place so you Absolutely. you have the judiciary at the end you are accountable to everybody the militants mm-hmm. don't have that so if they threaten somebody and they say we we'll shoot you they can shoot you within a minute i mean it's up to the chaps mode let's say so those things count so that that's how it was i mean so we weren't really in the it it was not i would not say the peak but it was at a plateau and it started going down on yeah so uh, around uh, so just early 19 i think 1900s uh, so 1990s when the exodus kashmir exodus happened when kashmiri pandits were uh, pulled i mean they came out of kashmir and all that and you jo- you went uh, there in 1995 1996 yeah 95 so when so when you were there so because I'm not talking about militants I'm not talking about uh, insurgents coming from from that side of the border or anything I'm just just talking about the people of Kashmir right so what was their thoughts when it came to Indian army or Indian government at large and how has there been a mind has there been a shift in the mindset of the people now okay the I don't think the the people initially have always been a bit anti india should i say or i would say uh, uh, they they've been not too happy with the situation uh, for a for a for a fairly long time but if you recall in 40, 1940s uh, 48 after the problems happened there and the raiders came in they were helped by the indian army so there was a and and, and they had a lot of problem a lot of their women were traumatized because of the raiders and the way they behaved and the looting and all which these people in mm-hmm. right. so so there was a feeling among a vast majority of the population which which was there was no anger against it it, it still felt that you were outside the place right you were outsiders to an extent now i have had the good fortune of having served 3 years in kashmir in in the in, in the in the 70s when it was absolutely peace and we were located in srinagar so i have i've dealt with a lot of kashmiris there and it was it was a very good time then it's unfortunate that this election thing happened and it it just upset a lot of things at that time in 1989 okay uh, sir now talking about your experiences in jnk valley right so since you are part of the paratrooper right uh, paratrooper uh, of the indian army so what exactly is the role of a paratrooper and during war how it comes handy and what is the what what then what is the role of uh, your unit okay let me put it this way there are in the special forces 
there are two types of parabatalions one is called the para special forces which is used to operating in small teams that is five six people at a time right and it's spread out over a lot of places and it provides you with a varied amount in conventional warfare they do a lot of other stuff something akin to what the special forces of the, or say the SAS or the special forces uh, of the americans or somebody else does like that hmm. that is one one type of battalion so they operate in very small numbers they spread out and they basically operate to get you information their job is right. to pick up information their job is in some cases to raid uh, a headquarter maybe or but primarily their job is to set the battlefield so, so they get the information they work with they are supposed to be able to work with uh, you know with uh, uh, if 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 in that area like in say if they had to operate in tibet where the tibetans are against the uh, chinese government so then they would be working with the resistance forces they would be giving them advice they would support mm. them and how to go about putting an ambush or whatever this is one type of unit the other uh, para battalion which is an airborne battalion both are actually paratroopers but but it's called airborne modification now right. that those battalions are heavy battalions they operate their strength they they the basic job of both are to operate behind enemy lines but but the parachute battalion the heavy battalion operates it it occupies ground and it uh, stops let's say enemy reserves coming in towards the battlefield where where suppose you you we are launching an attack from somewhere along the along the mm. border so they are dropped behind the enemy the forward line okay and okay. what happens is when when an attack goes in and uh, then automatically the enemy starts you know he starts doing an appreciation and says okay this is where the attack is coming in so he may bring in more forces to come in there reserves he brings in so this type of a force is used to stop those reserves coming i'm putting it very simply there are lots of other yep. work they can do but this is so they are a heavier unit so they are okay. capable of holding ground they are they are meant to hold ground they are capable of uh, taking on armor they are capable of they have the ability to take on armor they have the ability to take on uh, other infantry so so the lighter units actually work you know with deception and quiet and stuff like that they 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 do it uh, in camouflage and stuff the the heavier units are more meant for the punch they are actually your hard hitting they they'll go and sit somewhere and stop any, anything coming there in 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 the earlier days in the plains it used to be that okay there's a bridge there there's a canal somewhere or a bridge somewhere you went and captured that or you established mm-hmm. a bridge head along a canal you know you you read uh, if you've seen some of these movies like uh, d day or whatever yeah the, the second world war this thing there is on arnhem bridge there is a, a bridge too far and stuff so so you go and capture a bridge and then wait for the ground forces to link up with you and then they are able to use that bridge to get across so that is the ty- kind of job that they do so they go in much deeper and they do operate in a very uh, uh, sort of they they're capable of staying for some time maybe 72 hours 48 hours uh, a good example of this 
is what we did in 71 where okay. a para- parachute battalion was dropped near just on the outskirt of dhaka at tangail and they captured a bridge there and okay. it, it 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 brought pressure onto the pakistani headquarters thinking that you know you're getting surrounded from all sides and these troops have come in here there were troops stuck behind them where they were because we came and interposed ourselves in between their troops and uh, the the dhaka and their troops in front so their troops in front couldn't get back so so those kind of things. that is the type of job that they do so the okay. uh, you have the parachute brigade which is actually doing that job sir have you been any uh, in any sort of operation in jnk or northeast where you have served jnk in in the sense of operations being there are lots of operation because it's counter insurgency right uh, even in the northeast it's counter insurgency so there are lots of operations going on at the same time very maybe very small ones where you are going in for a you 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 get information about a single militant or you get information about two or three militants normally if you are controlling the area if you are dominating mm-hmm. the area then the number of militants who can operate will operate only in small groups because the moment there is a larger group they are in trouble so you have two to three coming in somewhere or maybe they met somewhere and then there are three four sitting together or maybe a few more sitting together yes you have that sort of a thing so there are lots of operations which happen they continuous actually it's a continuous thing uh, on on a on a given day in and uh, i was commanding the battalion so yeah. in, uh, in in kashmir so on a given day uh, you could be having maybe four to five operations happening happening at the same wow so different companies different elements are doing some different work and different areas so they are operating all over the place it's a, it's a 24 hour cycle i mean you are you are constantly on the move because information comes to you at odd times from various places and if you don't respond to that information then the source will dry up and it may not be a true source i mean you, it could be that he is giving you fraud information hmm. but uh, at least if you don't try and respond to it then if it is good information which happens once say in a hundred times so what happens is that a lot of your operations may be uh, uh, in in the dark you're hitting in the dark but the the odd one works out very well and you're actually able to do something there. it depends also on how good your intelligence uh, structure you are able to set up in our army you have a the the infantry battalions the para battalions which are working on ground which are sitting there have their own intelligence uh, they they establish their own intelligence uh, sources you don't depend so much on the higher headquarters because the higher headquarters the sources are not so uh, they may be very accurate some of it is very good but by and large it's 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 very uh, generalized so you don't know exactly what it right when it comes from the higher offices it would be a more broader view of you know what they will have and what when you are on the ground it needs there needs to be small you know if i have to put it like way you need to cater to it in small packets right right so there could be a insurgency here there could be uh, maybe 5 uh, kilometers down the road or 10 kilometers down the road there could be another in- insurgency so yeah. those local information collection some insurgents are moving around that day some insurgents may be moving around 5 kilometers 10 kilometers away right overall what happens is that in a in a high level thing the sources lay from the intelligence agencies or from the from the military intelligence or 
they pick up on electronic surveillance or whatever, they have certain amount of information they get. And so they come to know that broadly in this area, there is a lot of insurgents, insurgents moving around. So they can give you that insurgents information. But they, they give you a fairly broad area in which to operate, yeah. which, which is, you know, when you're at night, you can't see more than five feet. Then even if you have a hundred people, you're seeing, you know, maybe 500 feet or a, or, or, or a, or a kilometer at best. Right. right. So, so, so the, so, so there you need to get your own intelligence to tell you, okay. So he tells you that these three villages, there is something happening. So then you start building up and finding out information as to what is happening in those villages. You pick up sources, you make, you make your own sources and try and back up and find out specifics. Very few operations happen where the higher headquarters can give you specifics. They are there. It's happened before. Okay. So without going too deep, I mean, uh, whatever information can be shared on a public platform, uh, how do you build these, you know, information uh, sources? And how do you identify, okay, this source is a trust, I mean, trustworthy source and this one and whenever information comes in, how do you identify, how, how do you differentiate that, okay, this is a trustworthy source and I can, uh, you know, uh, believe on this and then act on it. And how do you also say, okay, this could be fake and uh, this is, this could compromise my team. Okay. A lot of things what happen is uh, when you start getting information from somebody, it's it's somebody comes and drops off information says I have seen militants in so and so place, huh. or he says that you go to this village this chap is there he's a militant he's working with the militants. Now what happens is some of that information is completely fake because it could be personal enmity between two people. Yep. So he would just say that okay so and so is there. Now when you are new and you go into an area first and you don't have any sources. And you get start getting such information, then you start following it up. You go into action there, and then you after you've talked to a chap, you've interrogated him, you've talked to him for some time. Then you get, and and then you ask other people, and you get to know that this is fake. Slowly, that this this is why he is doing it. Then you start getting the picture. Sometimes the police are also helpful. They tell you, okay, this is what's going on. Initially, when you actually go into insurgency, normally the police is already compromised. They are not in a position to tell you anything. They are only in the barracks. They don't leave the barracks, so they don't have much information. They don't want to share information because their own families can get into trouble. So there is a whole lot of things that happen. So it is by slow and steady you build up. You know, you 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 have your 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 spread out. You know what we we follow a grid system of deployment. In which, in four or five places next to villages, you set up your, uh, you have outposts. And those outposts are where people come. So somebody may come to that outpost while going past it, drop a message off and say, Achha, aisa tha. or can I get some kind of help or whatever is the thing. And a lot of people do it for money as well. So then you offer them mm -hmm. money and say, okay, if you get me information, if, he, if he's showing some signs that he wants to give you information, so you get information like that. So a fair amount of that is that. Initially, when we went into Kashmir, we had the benefit of um, uh, the that time the number of militants was so high that each of the battalions which was there had a a, a, a place where militants were held as a jail, sub jail, let's say, and that was legally it was set up there. The sub jail was set up in your unit location itself. Because the okay. jails actually didn't have space to 
keep so many milligrams. So after you caught a chap, you kept him in the sub jail for some time, and then he went to the magistrate and whatever happened. And then if he was supposed to be in jail while his case was happening, especially if you had caught him with weapons, then he stayed there in that sub jail. So we had a sub jail in ours. We were in Shupia actually in that area, and which is which is the hotbed of insurgency in South Kashmir. And, and so in our post where we had the sub jail, we had uh, wired it up. So we could pick up all conversations. Okay. So so we got some information from that side. Then you have which is which is normal. I mean these are all these these you see on TV series, you know. I mean these days. Then you have uh, you 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 put your radio sets on the frequencies which the the militants use. And if you have a Kashmiri speaking guy or somebody who speaks Kashmiri or some you you have people who are there. so then you start getting information from them. So slowly you start correlating what they are talking about on their uh, radio sets with the ground, and so you and and incidents that happen, and so you come to know that okay when he talks about some badam ka kuchha somewhere, and something happens in a village somewhere, you know that that has got some connection with. There are a whole lot of other techniques which you use, which uh, today though even it's even better because you got a lot of you know you got drones, you got this, you got that. Right. I think they must be having a far better, better system of being able to eavesdrop, pick up stuff, information. One of the bigger this thing that happen is that when you go each each company say or each uh, establishment outpost you set up, it has an area of responsibility. So there you go to these villages, which is in your area, and then you start talking to people in the villages and you become friends with them. If villages lot, you know what happened in Kashmir in the nineties when the first Bit of militancy happened. They burnt all the bridges that they had. The small culverts going to their villages across the stream. They burnt okay. everything. They burnt schools. They burnt bus stops. So by ninety five, ninety six, when you wanted your apples to be moved, it was very tiresome because you had to to cross each nala. You there was no culvert. So then we used to go and offer that okay we'll build you a culvert you all we'll help you with the culvert we'll get a dozer and it'll do some work for you you build it you give us this thing so you build up your friendship with them some amount of cooperation and so that gives they say okay these are the good people so they give you some amount of information comes out somebody drops it by mistake he tells you this is happening there or don't go that side or this is some problem here so then you start correlating stuff and. Information comes from a whole lot of source, whole lot of directions, and so you have to just sort of mix and match, and so you need to work on that. I mean, it's it's something which a lot of people sit, and they they sort of analyze it, and then only you come and you say, okay, this is what's happening. You have a broader picture, you have a smaller picture, you know exactly what is there, and then you have your focus area. So it's one of those things. So as as an army person, uh, like you, build your own sources uh, with the common citizens and all those. uh same way i would believe that militants also be, build their uh, sources in those same regions and where army is going to conduct a raid or what is going to happen most so, of the militants are from those areas so they okay. have their own relatives who will tell you tell them if you are coming so what happens is for example when the army moves the moment hmm. they leave their barracks when the moment they hmm. leave their post some in in kashmir it's uh, you, you know it can be anywhere actually even in the northeast northeast it's even more this thing because it's tribal so so the moment the army leaves a post 
that message goes out that they they have left and they are going in this direction now in 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 the mountains in northeast it's very difficult mm. to turn around and go somewhere else it's a very tough thing to do so you probably leave at night you do it very quietly without anybody coming to know you come out from somewhere else and you know go off and don't hit the main road a whole lot of things similarly in the in the valley it used to be that okay you went in one direction then you backtracked then you went somewhere else and you so so people wouldn't know where you actually are that's the aim they wouldn't be able to track you for that much time that's how you do it that's how okay. we did it should i say so sir i had uh, colonel tushar joshi on the show, show. Uh, he was also part of the nsg which conducted that operation uh, in akshardham mandirgun gujarat so okay. he was ultimately who killed the militants uh, the terrorists uh, so he told me that he has also served in jnk and northeast right. so i asked him one question that uh, colonel joshi which is your favorite terrain where you have served i mean when it when you not favorite in terms of operations and all that i mean uh, you know you lo- fall in just fall in love with a place right and then i asked him what is which is the most you know difficult terrain which which you have served in so his answer was it was northeast yeah for both the questions no northeast is the even kashmir is very beautiful no doubt yeah. i mean that's why we have such a high tourism this thing there kashmir is easier to operate in because you are basically working in a valley mm. and and if you go into the jungles it's it's or you have to climb the hill because a lot of the areas there are those are slightly different no but but the main places are in the valley so transportation is much easier reaching a place is much easier in 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 northeast firstly you have the weather which is very very uh, difficult very sultry so you have a lot of you know the moment you go into a jungle you have a uh, uh, you start perspiring uh, you know uh, sweating and stuff like that and it gets uh, you know then navigation is very difficult right whatever you are doing sometimes you don't have contact so you can't even get into a gps and see where you are so and and then in the jungle it's and then walking through jungle itself you don't want to follow a foot track sometimes because you don't know who will ambush you on that so if yeah. you're going cutting through jungle which is or let's say uh, i we've been through some bamboo forests and stuff it it, it you can take about uh, an hour to do maybe 50 meters 30 meters 40 meters it takes you an hour so you walk i mean it can be very very tough so there's no doubt about it that kashmir is far easier to operate in in terms of beauty i think where there is no insurgency and where there is nothing and calm and quiet and things both areas are very beautiful like there are very beautiful areas everywhere i used to stay in um, i was posted in a place of i was my company was located in a a, a place called kasam kulen in the, in manipur and you were top of a hill and you you had the clouds going below you so you can oh. imagine how beautiful that whole area is so, yes the, to reach your post and to go away from there you had to calculate because it was very easy to get ambushed there were ambushes which happened to units before us and there were ambushes which happened to units after us where they lost 15 20 people at a time so it's a it's a, it's a tough call northeast is a tough call okay so uh, sir you as you discussed about uh, jnk the issues in jnk so what are the issues in uh, northeast i mean there also we have a lot of you know militant issues which have been going on with you know one or the other uh, i mean groups out there with, with, against the army 
so northeast uh, i think it's 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 been more complicated with the naga insurgency would happened earlier yeah with the mizo insurgency which happened earlier the fact that manipur also started off but to a large extent most of these had started coming under control even manipur which is the last one of them actually had had more or less come under control till all these things happened where the methis and the kukis started fighting and this attack on the kukis and whatever and now there have been a whole lot of militants who have gained ground because the government has lost control otherwise for a long time i i personally in fact uh, with some friend with with some colleagues of mine we have written a, a paper for the center for land warfare in which uh, on the northeast for rainbow country something like that in that we've talked again about the business of insurgency why nobody wants the insurgency to stop but it's not too high so so you know you keep the status quo going so people are happy everybody is making his money and the only people who have a difficult time in that is the local the the poor guy who is right. in the village farming this that because he's he can't actually fight the democratic system because he's always made to feel okay you'll be searched this will happen mm. to you that will happen to you so in those circumstances it gets a bit tough shall i say so okay. that that's basic basically money the, the, the northeast was coming along very well now it's been pushed back by a decade or two i think and especially because the government the central government has not acted that is actually i don't know why they have not acted they must be having information as to not act or they must be having their own uh, reasons for it but uh, overall uh, it 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 has spoiled the complete social social structure that exists The, the complete cooperation and things that were there, and uh, a large number of the, uh, especially the Methi community, which has gone very, very after the Kukis. The one thing I have to say is that the Kukis were always pro-India. The Methis and the Nagas in uh, Manipur always wanted a separate. Nagas wanted a separate to join up with Greater Naga Nagaland. which would join mm-hmm. up with nagaland as well their areas but the money the the uh, methi insurgents in those days in the 90s and all were looking for a independent homeland so now they have been given leeway which by the state which is uh, i i don't i i'm certain the government must have realized and the government must have realized but uh, by now that this isn't so much a fight between methis and kukis it is an attempt to clear up an area so that a separate homeland could become a reality for the methis the kukis by the way are not liked by the nagas and the methis only because they are completely pro indian so they have been always seen as you know people who give away information to the they are okay. always working in tandem with the military it's always been that and uh, that is where they have actually lost out so with this all the surgical strikes happening in the do you see that it, there is any change in jnk or the northeast region after this uh, with this current government see i i i think surgical strikes happened before the government came in they 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 were done in the 
earlier years hmm. they have only thing that has happened is that now it was given a lot of publicity actually but what they have achieved i really don't know i i really can't say because you hear very conflicting versions of the whole thing must have deterred to some extent i have no doubts some deterrence value it would have of that because you can get hit so when yeah. in kashmir say for example when they bring them up to the border and they keep them there to before they can push them into india so wherever they are keeping them if they know that this is being it it's been seen it's forced them into probably keeping their people further away more deeper inside not so much not so close to the border which impacts the way they can come in yeah. you see if you are far away then to come inside you have to be coming in at night so when you are coming in that that becomes vulnerability because some transport is seen coming in and and if you were trying to creep in only a few people can go through if you want to send a large body of troops it can't happen that's one part of it so there is obviously an impact i mean there is always an impact in anything that you do and along the loc in any case the units deployed along the loc have always i mean sometimes the pakistan army has come into our areas and ambushed somebody or done something then the unit which is on this side because they want to push you down right they want to dominate you so then a similar action has been taken by us by that unit and gone across and done some action there these things keep happening right now i don't think because there there was a sort of a peace thing going on but i think couple of days there will be some action happening somewhere people talk so with uh, so much of experience in the army and with so much operations that you have gone through uh, could you please share with us i mean some of the you know moments which could have been probably life threatening for you or some of the operations that you had i mean out of the so many operations that you mentioned uh, of the insurgencies any of the operation which still you know uh, has a place in your heart and mind there, there are a lot of them actually but uh, you know they are not things which i would like to uh, dwell on too much if okay. if i have to actually talk about life threatening situation is that uh, i i had come from manipur i had come on leave and um, to calcutta and i was going okay. to meet my wife somewhere and, and uh, when we were when, when I, i was supposed to be there for the i i had only been given a week's leave and those days the flight from imphal to calcutta was only on saturdays okay so i i came on a saturday and i was supposed to get back the next saturday and that time my wife fell ill and uh, so i asked for permission to stay longer but my message never reached the unit because those days you know 90s the hmm. thing was fairly you couldn't get through on a phone there was a lot of difficulties and the telegrams i sent nothing happened so i had no choice but to get back on the flight and come back so on the next saturday i took the flight and got back and i was okay. quite unhappy about it and a week later the same flight while coming in to land the indian airlines air india flight coming in to land at uh, in imphal went and banged into a tree uh, into a hill and everybody died oh. including the deputy chief minister and i found myself leading the uh, team which was going for rescue because it is very bad weather and we were called mm-hmm. down near there is a place called loktak the loktak lake which is a huge lake here. and there's some very high features behind that and it had banged into that they suspected it had banged into that and uh, nobody was being able to go up so i we had a team with me i had a team which went up there and we found the crash site 
so that is is life threatening in the sense that i was lucky otherwise i would yeah. be coming back the next week so who knows right so in in that sense otherwise you have you have always you know uh, you you any operation can go wrong anywhere so you can you can end up being shot by your own people you can end up being uh, making a mistake yourself and uh, think like that i mean it's 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 very easy somebody is you know you may have gone to the wrong place you may have so ev- any any operation you are on is there is nothing i mean you remember this recent uh, these people who died in that uh, in kashmir when they went where they had some yeah. information and the police officer and the ceo of the unit died unfortunately it's 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 like that i mean you 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 could be you could just miss out something or you could just get everything so you everything is on a balance you you really don't know and where live ammunition is there arms people are firing at you in anger you never know when you are in the way yeah. it can happen okay uh sir my last question to you would be what does army life really teach you other than leadership qualities and all that what does an army life teach you i mean when you have left your army obviously there are qualities that you still would have you know carried on from your army when you served in the army so what are those qualities and what exactly does to your mindset oh, that's an interesting one because okay i'll put it this way that you have to first and foremost because you live in a disciplined society it 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 brings on to you it's not so much somebody else telling you that you must do this or with a stick telling you to do this a lot of what happens is a lot of self discipline gets ingrained there are things you will not do because it's not supposed to be done yeah. if somewhere it says that you're not supposed to step on grass you won't step on grass because there's a board somebody has in his wisdom put up a board saying we want to save this grass it looks nice so please don't step on grass people will not step on grass so so there is one question of self discipline self discipline also adds to the understanding and importance of time time becomes i mean as you know in the one of the biggest things and i'm i after leaving the army i've spent i left the army in 2008 right so this is 14 years later i mean so i and yeah. i have worked in the corporate world I've, i'm i'm still working with the observer research foundation let's say so i i know i mean so time the importance which in civi street the importance given to time is far less than what in the army it is even at 70 i am not i'm i'm there at a place 5 minutes before time right any function that i have to attend in the army i know it will happen on time it won't be delayed if it is yeah. delayed for some reason there will be enough this thing given as to why it's happened and people yeah. will also be apologetic about it or whatever but i'm i'm saying on a basic thing so time if if you if you if you're not if you're casual about time people don't realize how important it is right but it uh, in, in fact i think uh, field marshal manikshaw talked about it if, you you're committing a crime if you are not on time because it's 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 you're making people wait you're making people do things 
there is a lot of things which you could have done in that time it's 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 something which people look at you and say okay he's here and you know somebody comes in one and a half hours late and you say okay especially there are these political meetings which happen where somebody comes in or uh, somebody has to address a, a rally or somebody has to mm-hmm. address a school and a politician comes in and he comes in late so those things happen so then for a student to see that and say that look he's not on time i mean it's it's a you take it it's not ingrained into you. so that's very important most of all i think what happens is that you learn to think for yourself you learn to look at the bigger picture and you learn to uh, sort of relate to everybody else so so you are not looking at divisions to them you are not looking at mm. uh, you know this chaps caste or this chaps religion or whatever you 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 those things are not important right. if he is by your side he is your chap i've had uh, in my company in manipur i had a, a young boy from my unit who was a muslim and during mm. um, when ramzan started he started uh, he used to keep his fast but when we were doing operations it 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 weakened him very fast so automatically you know he didn't want to get out of it because it was a question of self respect as well he says why should i stop doing operation when i am there and i'll also go along with everybody else but then it came on to me that i said okay let me think of somehow i can use him in a different manner so i employed him in a manner where he was uh, not that physically required to work in that physical style, this thing and i was in, in, able to ensure that he was okay that that he was still doing an important job he didn't feel that he was doing an unimportant job so so it these are these are things which you start looking at you become to a large extent selfless because others matter your buddies matter your friends matter your company somebody matters the army you have those famous saying that okay first you look after your troops and then only you look after yourself you first feed them i mean if you have food you to arrange stuff you do it first for them and then do it for others so that offer yourself then only you start yourself so so that those are the things which once you start in it gets ingrained in you it doesn't go away in civi speak Uh, so this is a very light this is a very light question and uh, it's a personal question that i have so having served in the army then having served in an mnc right right uh, so w- what is a work culture that you find and where you have to you know where you had to you know uh, okay adjust to it because army life teaches you discipline timeliness compassion prioritize tasks and all that you know handle pressure and everything then comes a mnc setup where everything is asked is said to be this is this is priority this is priority so how did you manage and get to strike that balance so so you have i mean i was fortunate i i took over a company in india of an mnc which was just starting off in india they first had an okay. american guy who was looking after it it was a security integration company set set cameras and stuff like that so but uh, he was not able to cut it i mean he was finding india a very difficult place to understand this is in bangalore and i came in there and for one i had no problems with anybody because we just because they knew that whatever i said 
is what I meant. I never said that, okay, if somebody came and told me I have difficulty in doing this, I'd say, okay, what do you want me to do? How do we deal with it? So we had no issues. I mean, I seriously had no issues with anybody. There were a couple of people who, 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 who you know, who wanted to leave, let's say, and who didn't tell me or they, they broke my trust. But an odd person like that is everywhere. It's in the army also. It's not that it's not there. So, so you can't uh, change your attitude towards everybody else based on that. In 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 right. getting work done in 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 running a team, whether it's corporate or whether it's the army, there's certain things which you have to do for getting loyalty. You have to be loyal. Right. You have to. Their chap has to be convinced that you care for him. That what you are doing is not about you, but about everybody. You're looking after the team. So all those things still matter. I mean, whether in corporate, anywhere, they, they are how you run a thing. So I, I don't think, yes, there are differences which I can go into, but they are uh, very minor differences. You know, like in the in the army, for example, the army, uh, when, when, when you have a project, you're doing a project, and you're mm. the chap who's doing the project as the, let's say, the head of the project, whatever team, unit, subunit, whatever. So whether there is, if, if, it, if it is a very successful thing and everybody compliments you and you say, look, not only me, the rest of the team also did a lot of it, right? But, uh, and, and, and a lot of people do that in CV Street as well. In corporate also people do that. But in, yeah. in, in, in corporate, there is a different, slightly different attitude is where if you, um, uh, something is going wrong and you have, say, an engineer there or a technician there who's not doing the work properly. Then you are not protecting him. You are not. I mean, in 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 the army, you would protect him. You would try and convince him, change him, work with him, whatever, to make him also come onto your line. Or then you would throw him out. But but in in Civi Street, you are not. If you protect him, then people think that you are doing. You know that you are as inefficient as that guy. Great. That that problem is there. So 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 in the army, when you look after an organization. You don't take, I mean, you take responsibility if things go wrong. You say, it's my fault. I should have been able to. But in Civi Street, you don't do that. You don't say, it's my fault. Then you point out that these are the things that went wrong. And these are the people who actually messed up. And these are the people I'm going to get rid of. Whatever it is. So it's that silver lining between the definition of a leader and a boss. Right. Okay. In, in 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 a sense... In the army, uh, it, it's very different because in the army, a leader has to be willing to uh, do what he's asking his men to do. Right. He yeah. has to do it. If he's not there, you can't lead from the back. Exactly. So, he, I mean, there are different levels of leadership. The COs, the commanding officers in a battalion is sitting at the back and he's giving orders to his companies to do something. But everybody in that company knows that when he was a company commander, he's done exactly the same things. Hmm. Or if he was a platoon commander, he's done exactly the same thing. He's faced the same stuff. So if he's asking you to do it, if, if, if somebody has to do a room entry, there is a time when I've also done a room entry. So if I tell somebody we need to enter this room, it may be dangerous, but it's, he knows that, okay, we've done this. That kind of thing. If I'm jumping out hmm. of an aircraft, I should be there. I mean, I must jump out. I can't tell others to jump out and I'll sit exactly. down and watch. Exactly. That kind of stuff. That's the basic thing from the army leadership point of view. 
I, I, yeah. I won't talk about in civilian this thing that's more management actually you're doing right yeah you're trying to get the uh, work out of people some amount of leadership but mainly it's management thank you Deepak sir uh, it's yeah, always it's always an honor and a pleasure to speak with someone from the you know armed forces uh, there is so much to learn there is so much to talk I mean uh, if we don't have if you don't put a timeline to the podcast, it would just go on and on. Right. Because you have such I mean, a dearth of experience. I, I hope I haven't talked too much. <laughs> we would we would love to we would love to hear more from you, sir. Okay. But okay, we'll keep it uh, for some other day. Right. And thank you, so thank much. you Deepak sir. It's been a pleasure. It was it was a uh, memorable and pleasure. I mean, honor for me to have you on the show, and right. I hope uh, it was a pleasurable ex- experience for very you as well. You. Very kind of you. And thank you very much. Very good interaction. I enjoyed it. Okay. See you. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. All the best. Thank you, sir. Thank you.